Good morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to where uh, Neil was reading. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. We're just going to jump into it verse by verse. And today's passage is very thick theologically. Uh, Jesus makes all kinds of claims here about who he is, about his, his deity. Um, it flows out of the passage that we talked about last week where um, he walks into this place. That's this pool where the, all these invalids, and it says there's a multitude of them that have gathered around this pool. Uh, if you look at verse 4, chapter 5 in your Bible, you'll notice it's not there, most of you, um, because that was a later insertion. So our older, more reliable manuscripts don't have verse 4, so your newer versions took it out. If you have a King James Bible, it's still there. But it's just a note to let you know why the passage develops the way it does, because he says, you know, when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, well, when the waters are stirred, I can't get, I don't have anybody to help me get to the waters, and I can't get there quick enough. So without that little information, you're like, that's weird. Uh, why, why does he say that? Well, verse 4 is kind of inserted there to let you know why he says that, because there was this uh, tradition, there was this myth, this belief that an angel would come down periodically, stir the waters, and the first one who gets into the pool would be healed, and he had no one to help him to get into the pool. So that was his reason for why he wasn't healed. Uh, there's all kinds of things about identity that we could talk about there, how it seems like he's embraced the fact that he's an invalid. Uh, instead of saying, yes, I'd like to be healed, instead he gives reasons of why he is the way he is. And I think we can make a lot of correlations there in our own lives, the things that we struggle with. You want to be healed from it? Well, here's what it is. Here's why I am the way I am. Uh, and we begin to identify with our illnesses, our sicknesses, our addictions, whatever they may be. And there's a lot of hope in this, so I want us to get into it. We're, I'm just going to tell you, we're not going to be able to cover all of this. When we started digging into this, we were like, we have bit off more than we can chew. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to scratch the surface of this and hopefully... Um, prompting you something that you may want to further investigate and go deeper with. But there's enough here that you're just going to walk through this and go, oh my gosh, that's so, that's so amazing. So here's what we have in today's passage. There is this relationship. Jesus makes this claim. There's a relationship between him and his father that's different than anyone else's. It's a special relationship. Because he has this special relationship, he has the power to resurrect just because the father also has that power and he has the special relationship with the father because he and the father are one he has the power to judge and this is why he has the power to do what he did on the sabbath day so he goes through this whole litany of reasons and you'll notice in here there are four fours and the four is f-o-r when he gives these uh, reasons he'll say for this for this for this for this and that's in essence his building his argument of why he is lord of the sabbath why he is able to do what he does because of who he is the relationship he has with god and the power that comes with this therefore on the sabbath day he has the power to heal he has the power to restore he has the power to recreate because he is god so in essence if you want my version of this i'll summarize it greatly the religious leaders say hey why are you healing on the sabbath and jesus says oh uh because i created the sabbath okay so that's my version of it but i know that that's not suffice for you so we'll dig into it a little deeper verse 16 and this was why the jews were persecuting jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, you may sit there and go, uh, maybe I missed a few Sundays. I don't remember the Jews persecuting Jesus. What, what is this about? 
Uh, well, remember, John is not like the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, if you want to get into Matthew and Mark, they're into chronology. They tell you how things happen and the order they happen in. John's not interested in chronology. He's interested in laying down a theological foundation for understanding who Jesus is so that you might believe in him as Messiah and find salvation. So he doesn't necessarily tell us things in sequence therefore he's giving you that little bit of information letting you know this was much later on in jesus ministry and this is the kind of thing of why they were persecuting him why they were trying to kill him as he'll get a little further on in in, in the passage that we have here now what we have to really look at here recap a little bit from last week because there's no way to look at this week without understanding that it flows out of what we looked at last week last week we talked about this man who was an invalid he'd been an invalid for 38 eight years and it's a very odd story is it not this man seems to have been lying around this pool for 38 years and then if you actually have verse 4 in there there's this weird story about how an angel would come down every once in a while and stir the waters and whoever gets into that pool first uh, they experience a healing so when Jesus comes to this guy uh, and he says do you want to be healed he gives this reason of why of 38 years he's never been able to get into the water because he's never had anyone help him now here's the one thing I would say to you I would say there has to have been some healing that happened in this place or someone would not stay there for 38 years okay if the waters never stirred and no one ever walked out of there healed there's not going to be people who are going to walk stay there for 38 years okay so that's a question number one go why would you stay there uh, the other thing is this, you have to understand this is not a Jewish section of Jerusalem, it's actually a Roman section. This pool is not a Jewish pool, like the pool of Siloam, which you uh, listen to later on, the Jews use it for some of their uh, water libation ceremonies uh, on the Feast of Sukkot. The, the pool of Bethesda is not. Here is what the pool of Bethesda is. It is actually a place where the Greek god Asclepius is worshipped. Asclepius, as I got a picture of him here, is the Greek god of what? Medicine or healing. So this pool was centered around this guy. So when it talks about an angel would come down, it's not talking about an angel from heaven. It's talking about an angel of Asclepius would come down and stir the waters. Now you would say, oh wow, that's, that's way different then than, than what I was thinking with this. Yeah, but think about the other part of that. How cruel would God be to send an angel down every once in a while and stir the waters and whoever's the first one to get in there you're healed the rest of you sorry <laughs> that would be a cruel trick to play wouldn't it and here's the other thing to understand really what's behind this is the romans use this to keep the riffraff and the undesirables out of the rest of the city what actually happened at this pool was a lot of sham healings they would plant people there and then they would have the waters stirred, and those people who supposedly had something wrong with them would get to the waters before all the invalids would, and they would come out praising because they had been healed. It's almost like the lottery, right? You line up to get a lottery ticket because you've seen people on TV who've won the lottery, but none of you know anybody who's actually won the lottery, right? You've never met them. Maybe you do, but the, supposedly they exist. It's kind of like good lawyers. Supposedly they exist out there somewhere, but I've never, I'm just kidding. If you're a lawyer, please stay with us. I, it was just an inside joke. I make fun of preachers too. But um, the point of it is they would use that to keep the undesirables out of the rest of the city. 
So that way the lame, the invalids, who would naturally be in the city begging for stuff, it keeps them out because they're all hoping that maybe they're going to be next. So they sit there and they see these sham healings one after another, and that keeps them there. And this man's been there for 38 years. Let me just tell you that that stuff still happens today, okay? Uh, I'm not going to go into it. It's a whole other ceremony. I mean a ceremony, a whole other sermon. But there are places of worship today where there are false healings, and the whole point of it is to keep a devout group of people coming together so that you can manipulate them and enslave them. I'll leave it at that, and we'll move on. So Asclepius is this god of healing. Now, Asclepius has this symbol. If you'll notice, this was the symbol of Asclepius. Anybody seen this before? Yeah. So a lot of people believe that this medicine symbol is from Moses raising the snake in the wilderness, but it's not. It comes from Asclepius. Everything in our medicine is from Greek. Okay? So Greek, he is the god of medicine. That's where that symbol comes from. Um, and so the rod of Asclepius has the snakes around it, and it was this picture of healing. The reason we know this pool was some form of a worship place of Asclepius is that archaeologists have actually dug around here, and they found this symbol all over the place near this pool. So that's where they know that this is what's happening, and that's what's happening there. So this guy is at this sham place of healing, and he wants to be healed. Now here's the other thing that's pretty cool about this. Jesus, if you understand where this is, it tells us that he is in Jerusalem for the feast, there to worship. Well, he doesn't have to go in this area of Jerusalem. It's way off to the side. The whole point of it is to keep those kind of people out of where everyone else is. So Jesus, the light of the world, goes to one of the darkest places of Jerusalem when he doesn't have to, to pick out one person to show them true healing and his power over darkness. So a guy who's been there for 38 years, Jesus walks up to him, doesn't have to stir any waters. He just says, because he's the word, do you want to be healed? And the guy, of course, his identity is being an invalid, so he just gives these reasons of why he's an invalid. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And the man, for whatever reason, maybe he has this faith that builds in him. Maybe he feels energy going into his legs he's never felt. Maybe he feels the strength overcome him. For whatever reason, he stands up and he walks and he takes up his mat. And that's amazing, isn't it? And you just sit there and go, that's awesome. But when he gets to the temple and they see him carrying a mat, they're like, whoa, 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 this is the Sabbath day. Uh, you, you, you can't, that's a no-no. You can't, you could be killed for that, okay? You can't, you can't carry your mat. Why are you carrying a mat? I'm sorry, I didn't know the rules. I've been in a pool for 38 years. Uh, first time up here in a long time. I didn't realize all the things. I don't have a membership or whatever. I'm sorry. But the guy who healed me down at the pool, he told me to take up my mat and, and walk. And so that's why I'm doing it. And they didn't say, who healed you? They said, who told you to take up your mat and walk? They're not really concerned about healing. They're more concerned about law-breaking. And that's what John is emphasizing here. And the guy says, uh, I don't know who he was. He had kind of escaped. I kind of drifted out into the crowd before I could see who he was. And so I don't know who he is. And then it tells us that Jesus came up to him while he's at the temple and says, Look, you are well. Go and sin no more so nothing worse may befall you. And we sit there and go, what in the world could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years sitting around a pool? And the picture there is that you have to pick up on is that John changes the scenery. 
And that's what he wants you to pick up on. Jesus isn't saying to this guy, don't go out there and sin anymore because if you sin a whole lot more, then you'll be even worse than an invalid. Because there's times in the Gospels where they reveal to us that Jesus doesn't attribute your badness to your sickness. There's even a time where somebody asks him, who sinned, this, this man or his mother and his father? And he says, neither one of them. He, he, he's blind because for the glory of God, and he heals him. So it doesn't always mean that just because you're a bad person, you're going to be more sick than anyone else. So then what is Jesus talking about? Here's what he's talking about. This guy has been an invalid in the darkest places of Jerusalem for 38 years. He has been healed of that, and he walks. And he goes to a temple where not the God of Asclepius is worshipped, but Yahweh is worshipped. But it's surrounded by these people who are legalists. And he's had this conversation with them. And Jesus comes up and is basically saying this. Listen, don't trade one addiction for another. Don't trade one paralysis for another. You've been healed physically. Make sure you don't trade your physical paralysis for spiritual paralysis. Because if you buy into legalism and you think it's all about what you do and what you don't do, you have missed what I've done in your life and you've missed, you didn't do anything to deserve that healing. You were laying there. You didn't even ask. You didn't even say yes. I healed you despite the fact that you didn't even say you wanted to be healed. That is the grace of God. It's nothing that you've earned. Don't trade physical paralysis for spiritual paralysis. You know, sometimes we can get this idea in our minds that God saves us, but after that, somehow we have to manufacture the rest of our righteousness. He kind of gets us on our way, and then it's up to us to keep the ball rolling. That's not true. It's never been about us or what we can do. We can't add anything to what Christ has already accomplished for us. And that's what he wants us to understand here. It tells us here that the man was carrying a, what does it say? A mat, right? What was he carrying? Does it, what your copy of scripture may say a bed or something like that, right? But it's a mat. Now, here's what's interesting. The Greek word for mat is wooden pallet. Now, you're like, whoa, that's mind-blowing, Jack. Thank you for pointing that out. Now, the reason that's important to understand is if you ask yourself, huh, he's in trouble for carrying this mat, because he's doing something on the Sabbath day, and you could get killed for doing something on the Sabbath day. Maybe you're the inquisitive type, and you say, I wonder if anyone was ever killed for doing something on the Sabbath day. So you go to the Old Testament, and you begin to read, and you read from beginning to end, and you find there's only one time in all of Scripture where someone is actually killed for working on the Sabbath day. Guess what that guy was doing? He was carrying wooden sticks around. And he lost his life because he was carrying these wooden sticks. Now, let me show you what a mat looks like. Go ahead to the mat. Isn't that interesting? It's a bunch of wooden sticks woven together. That's what a mat was in that day and time. Now, why is that significant? Because if you go back and the only example in all the Old Testament of someone being killed for working on the Sabbath, they were carrying around wooden sticks, the law brought condemnation. But when Jesus comes into the scene, he says, take up your wooden sticks and walk. How can he tell him to do that? He's Lord of the Sabbath. The law brings death. Jesus brings what? Life. He brings life. He brings healing. That's what this passage is about, is to remind us of the power that he has, and that he is literally Lord of the Sabbath. So in one instance, it brings death, and the next instance, it brings life. So let's look at verse 17. 
But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus here ups the ante. (laughs) He ups the rhetoric with that statement. So far, he's only in trouble for disregarding the Sabbath day with these religious leaders. He told someone to pick up their mat and walk. He healed on the Sabbath day, and he's not supposed to do that because he's not supposed to do it on the day that it's observed. But not only now is he healing on the Sabbath, but now he's claiming to be equal with God. And there's some key indicators here that Jesus says, some words that he uses that they picked up on, and they know that he's claiming to be equal with God, and they make that statement a little later on. And the two things are this. My father, not our father, because when he teaches us to pray, he says, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, there's this collective communal aspect of how we relate to God. But somehow Jesus says, my father, in the sense that he has this special relationship, and they knew exactly what he meant by that. And he also says that their work is the same. He says whatever the father is doing, the son sees that, and the father is doing that. The father has been working up until now, and the son is working, implying that the work of the father and the work that Jesus is doing is the same exact work. Not only that, notice also that Jesus says that his father is working what? Until... That's interesting. So the father is working until now, and the son is working. It almost insinuates that the father is about to end his work. Now, here's the other thing. We go back, and all of this obviously is seated in Genesis 1 and the Sabbath. So God creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. Now, I know we talked about this last week, but when you look at Genesis 1, you find that there's this cadence to how the whole creation narrative develops. It says there was day one, and it was evening and morning the first day, and it was good. There was evening and morning the second day, and it was good. Third day, good. Fourth day, good. Fifth day, good. Sixth day, there was evening and morning, and it was good. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. And it never says there was an evening and a morning. Matter of fact, from that point on, it never says that the seventh day had an evening and a morning. So the belief there, and I believe it's intended for us to take from it, is the seventh day never ended. The seventh day just keeps going. Okay, because here's the other part of it. What did God create after day six? Can you point to anything in our world and say, God created that later. That was after day six. You go, well, maybe I wasn't there on day six, but I was not created by God, right? I was a part of the way he designed things because he said to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. I'm a product of that. So are you, okay? So God didn't create us like he created Adam. He didn't create us like he created Eve. So after day six, there's been not a single thing that God has ever created. So he only does this for six days, and yet we know him as creator, even though he only did that for six days and never created another thing, which is pretty awesome about God. But he rests, and why does he rest? That's real important for us to understand. He rests, is it because he's tired? Is it because he's exhausted? Is it because he cannot think of another thing, possibly, that he could create? These creative energies have flown out of him, and, and he just, that, that's it. I mean, he ended with the cat, and we're not even sure he made that. But um, that was uh, this is all he had. That was, he was exhausted at that point, right? Cat lovers, again, with the lawyers, uh, take, don't, don't quit coming to church. So the reason he rests on the seventh day is why? Because the scripture says he was finished. He finished all of his work. 
So the seventh day is, listen to me, it's not about stopping physical activity because you're tired. It's about looking back over the other six days because it deserves to be awed and appreciated and, and looked at and just reveled in. So God takes the seventh day and says, man, it's good. It's very good. Look at this. Look at the beauty. Look how it reflects my glory. And that's what the seventh day is all about. There's so many nuances to that. Man's created on the sixth day. What's the first, man, what's the first thing man it does? He rests. He doesn't do anything. The seventh day, his first day, does, nothing happens. I think that's pretty awesome. What does that speak to? Our salvation in Jesus. We're called into life. And what does he expect us to do? to rest in the fact and what does jesus say on the cross he says at the very end it is finished so the writer of hebrews picks up on this and writer of hebrews in chapter three and chapter four he begins to pick up on this idea of sabbath and he makes this argument that moses didn't bring about sabbath rest for the people because they never made it into the promised land and then he says Joshua also didn't bring about the Sabbath rest for the people because even though they made it into the promised land, they never drove out the inhabitants that were there like they were commanded. And those inhabitants, they just kind of moved in with them and kind of uh, adopted their way of life, and that caused havoc for them for years to come. And so the writer of Hebrews begins to go back to something David wrote in Psalm 95, and he keeps repeating it over and over again. There is a Sabbath rest for God's people yet to come and he talks about this sabbath rest as something that we need to strive to enter into now that seems like a paradox doesn't it you need to work hard to make sure that you stay in this rest well, what's he talking about he's talking about the same thing he even likens the writer of hebrews says there is a rest for god's people that is just like god's sabbath just like god resting on the sixth day why did god rest on the sixth day because he was appreciating what was finished. Why do we enter into the rest of God? Because we look at the finished work of Jesus on the cross and go, man, that's amazing. That deserves to be awed. That deserves to be worshipped. That deserves to be reflected on. But what happens is in our humanity, we want to go work out our righteousness. Thank you, God, for saving me and forgiving me my sins, but go look how good I'm going to be now. Look how perfect I'm going to be. I'm going to work, and I'm going to be just as righteous as you one day. And he goes, no, you've got to strive to not think that way and just remain in that Sabbath rest because you cannot add one ounce of righteousness to what Christ has already done for you. It's about your identity, and your identity has to be found in him, not in you. And Jesus is basically setting this up. And John is using this very early on. And you're going to see by the time we're done today how where he's going with this throughout the rest of his gospel. And it is absolutely mind-blowing. Because it says God has been working until now is a picture of even though the Sabbath starts on day 7, why is God working? Because there's something that happened in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? Man sinned. But immediately, God started working to take care of man's sin. Matter of fact, even in the curses that are pronounced, he looks at the serpent and he says, you're going to bite the heel of the seed of this woman, but he's going to crush your head. And it's the first messianic passage. So God is promising, I'm going to bring someone through the seed of a woman who you're going to strike him. He's going to take the full venom that you have, and it's going to kill him. But in taking the full venom that you have, he will crush your head. 
And from that day, right there in Genesis 3, God began working. And the rest of all of Scripture, all the Old Testament, shows God's plan, God's protection, God's provision to bring through the line of David, to bring through this group of people, to protect, to protect, protect, until we get to the New Testament. And this person who is named Jesus is born from a woman. And here it comes from the seed of woman, not from the seed of man, but from the seed of woman. And this one now is the one who has promised. God has been working until now. And now, God's work, God's direction, God's purpose, God's goal finds its fruition in Christ. Now he is working. And all that he's working is to show that the Father is faithful, to show that the Son has come to finish the work that was promised back in the garden. And through Jesus' sacrifice, when he gets to the end of it, he says, it is finished. And now there exists the Sabbath rest for all of God's people to enter into. But a lot, uh, a lot like this, uh, this paralyzed man, it's like we don't want it. It's like we don't deserve it. We won't walk into it. And I think that warning throughout the rest of the New Testament is a warning to all of us saying, listen, don't trade your freedom for another slavery. Don't trade the fact that I brought you out of your sin to walk into some other kind of slavery of legalism or thinking somehow you can earn God's favor or earn his love. It cannot happen. So what we have here, that's a great setup to tell you that Jesus is giving commentary here on, number one, the Sabbath, and number two, who he is. So Jesus says that he's referring to God's work, and this is God's work ever since creation. And God has been working to the culmination of Jesus coming into the world. And he does, he continues throughout the Gospels to continue to work through the Son. So what God does is he continues to do what he did in the beginning. What did he do in the beginning? He brought about life from nothing. What does he do here in this passage? He gives life back to someone who had absolutely no life. So this is the argument that Jesus begins to build, that somehow he is equal with God. And that's what he says right there. If you look at verse 18. He says, this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Wow, that escalated quickly. I mean, we went from a verse, two verses ago, they were persecuting him. Now they want to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I told you that verbiage that he's using there kind of sent their radars up, and they're like, we know exactly what he's claiming right here. So notice how it goes from persecution to killing. Notice that this may seem odd that they're picking up and blaming Jesus because he calls him my father, because you probably pray using that same kind of language. You probably say, uh, my father, or you call him that, and you think, there's no, no big deal. I'm not claiming to be equal with God. But what Jesus said in the context that he says it in goes way further than just referring to God as father. Look again at what he says back in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. So my father is working, the very act working of God, saving, healing, redeeming, resurrecting, and I am working. Therefore, I and God are one. So the Jews understand clearly that Jesus was not just claiming to be a child of God. He was very much in a 
very specific way claiming a special relationship with God. This is why they charge him with, verse 18, making himself equal to God. Because the Jews were monotheist. And in their minds, there's no way Jesus and Yahweh could be God. So if Jesus was God, somehow he was claiming to be another God in conjunction with Yahweh, and that just doesn't fly with their beliefs. So, a direct challenge to God would be a claim to deity. And that would be a sin, unless the claim is true. This was considered a sin as far as they were concerned. And the next few verses give the explanation of why Jesus is in the right by healing on the Sabbath. So watch this, verse 19. Watch how this develops. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For, and watch, there's four fours as we go through this passage. This is the argument that he's laying out. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may, what? So there's a special relationship, and I'm watching the Father, and the Father's watching me. And I do what I see the Father doing. And the Father shows me what he's doing so that I can do what the Father's doing. And I know more than you. He reveals more to me because I have this special relationship. And I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. But there's a purpose to that. I'm not just bragging about this great relationship that I have. Why, why he's doing that is so I can turn around and show you what the Father is doing, so that you may be brought into this, so that you may understand, so that you may embrace the character of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Notice how they are highlighting Jesus' claim to equality with God, but Jesus turns around and highlights his dependency on the Father. Did you see that? They're like, oh, you're claiming to be equal with God. He says the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. That's beautiful. It's beautiful because it tells us about this relationship that the Son, and we could even go further and say the Spirit and the Father all have together. Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing. So from that, we would think that somehow the Son is subordinate to the Father, which is true, right? Jesus is subordinate. So whatever the Father's will is, Jesus does it. Whatever the Father tells him to do, he does it. He's praying in the garden. Father, if there's any way this cup can be removed from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He says that, right? So he's subordinate to the Father. So the question is this. Is the opposite true? In other words, is the Father subordinate to the Son as well? Does the Father do whatever the Son asks him to do? Well, look ahead to verse 22. For, there's another one, the Father judges, what does it say? That's where you uh, answer from when you're reading, if you're still awake. What is it? All you lawyers, y'all all asleep, okay? What does it say? But has given all judgment to the Son. Wait a minute, Jesus, you just said you don't do anything unless you see the Father doing it. Now you tell us that the Father doesn't judge anyone, that you do all the judging. 
that's weird because you just kind of reverse where you were going with that whole thing. So the one thing we could say is this. The son is obedient to the father, very clearly from the first part. But I also think the reverse is true as well. The father is submissive to the son. Let me point you to another passage. Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Jesus is having a conversation, and he says this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Wow, Jesus makes the claim that all he has to do is say, Father, this is what I want, and the Father will deliver it. That means the Father is subordinate to the Son. So there is this mutual submissiveness, this mutual subordination within the Godhead. What I'm saying is this. The Son is subordinate to the Father. The Father is subordinate to the Son. The Son is subordinate to the Spirit. The Spirit is subordinate to the Son. The Spirit is subordinate to the Father. The Father is subordinate to the Spirit. Why? Listen to me. Because they're all one. They never disagree. They never have a different agenda. They all want to see the same thing. They all operate around the same goal because they are, in essence, the same identity. It's one God. So this one God lives in perfect community within himself. So there's never this disagreement. There's never this argument. There's never this pulling of one wants to build their kingdom over here and one wants to build a kingdom over here. I want to do it this way. No, I want to do it that way. No, they are in perfect submission one to another. Why? Because they operate around the same identity, the same goal. Okay. Now, I know some of you are going, I'm not sure if I'm listening to blasphemy or this is good truth. Let's keep going then, okay? Let's keep going. So... This is a picture of perfect community. Not only are they one, but they live for one goal, one purpose, and one identity. Let's continue in the text, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Huh. And then the last of the fours. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What is he saying? They're one. They're the same. Verse 24, and it all hinges right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Remember the first instance of someone on the Sabbath? Death. Second instance of someone in the New Testament? Life. Now, there's way more to this story. Let me give you a little bit more background that will blow your mind. So in the day, in the first century, there was this liturgy that Jewish families would go through, and they would read these same prayers every day, and they would sing some of them. And one of the songs they would sing every single Sabbath morning, not liturgy in the sense of it's different every week, but this one they prayed and they sang together as a family every Sabbath morning. Okay. Now remember what Jesus has just said about how the Father and the Son and they're together? Listen to this. Now the reason this is important is all of these Jewish religious leaders, they just sang this this morning. Listen to the the Sabbath liturgy. He revived the dead with abundant mercy. You lift up the fallen and you heal the sick. You keep people who have kept the faith who sleep in the dust. We will trust you to bring life to the dead. Blessed are you, Lord, who revives the dead. So these guys sang this with their families this morning. 
Then they go to the temple and they hear, there's this guy who healed someone. He told him to carry his mat. Who in the world does that guy think he is? They go up there and who do you think you are? Oh, actually, I and the Father are one. What? Yeah, matter of fact, the Father resurrects the dead. The Son resurrects the dead. Oh, we were just singing about you this morning. Think about how fresh that would have been on their mind. That's why it goes from persecution, we got to kill this guy. Verse 21. Look at it again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And he talks about this judgment, right? What is the judgment that he mentioned in verse 24? Because it's very interesting, because earlier in John, you remember that famous passage we looked at, John 3.16? And then John 3.17 says what? Jesus didn't come into the world to to condemn it so i mean judgment is what leads to condemnation so if he didn't come into the world to condemn the world what what is this judgment that he's talking about and i think the best way to understand this is you have to look at it from the context the judgment is again against the legalism it goes back to the context of this man that he's just brought out of this physical paralysis and now he finds himself at the temple and he's around all these uh, legalist uh, pharisees and sadducees and he says to the man don't get caught up in something even worse and find yourself in an even worse situation yeah, you might be fully revived physically, but you're going to be dead spiritually. Isn't it amazing how Jesus is so patient with those who will listen, even though they don't completely understand. But those who are legalistic and think they know everything, he is harsh and he warns them of judgment. I mean, even the rich young ruler who doesn't get it and walks away sad, Jesus still has compassion on him, calls him friend. Why? Because he genuinely wants to know. He just genuinely can't let go of it. Jesus has compassion. He has no compassion for legalism. Why? Because legalism defies the cross. It defies the grace of God. It defies the mercy of God and says, yeah, I, I need a little boost. Thank you, but I've got it from here. In essence, this is the totality of this passage in the most simple and most precise terms. Let me give it to you. Jesus can heal on the Sabbath day. Why? Because he has a special relationship with the Father as his son. So he is God. What does that mean? It means that he can heal the sick and raise the dead. It means that he can and will be the judge. So, so you should believe in him. That's how that passage flows right there. And so there's some application, I think, that we need to take away from this. And the first one is centered around that idea of Sabbath. Sabbath is this. Are you in need of a Sabbath? And here's the whole point of Sabbath. Sabbath is to take a day a week to undo what those other six days did to you. Because on those six days, you work really hard. And those six days, you get a paycheck. And then you begin to see your hour for what that hour can produce. And it's hard for you to see it any differently. And so that's when you have a whole day, and you work, and you work, and you work, and nothing really comes of it. You say to yourself, I have wasted this day. Because you can't think of a day or an hour apart from what that day or hour can produce. So God wants you to take a day and realize, listen, you are not what you produce. You are not a machine. Your worth doesn't come from how many bricks you make in Egypt. I want you to take a day a week to undo what those other six days did to remind yourself where your worth comes from. 
where your value comes from, where your identity should be found. It's found not in who you are or what you accomplish or how good you look or what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of car you drive, where your kids go to school, where you went to college or where you didn't go to college. Your worth is found in the fact that the God of the universe who looked over creation and said it's very good and we walked away from it and destroyed it and went into darkness and he came into that darkness as the light and brought us out. That says our worth comes from that relationship that we have with him. He's the one who puts worth in us. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, take this. To understand and fully embrace Sabbath, this is what you need to ask yourself. You need to know your purpose. You need to live for a kingdom, the right kingdom. And you need to clearly identify and keep your eye on a common goal. Remember how we talked about the reason God lives in perfect community within himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit? It's because they all operate around the same goal. They all operate around the same kingdom. They all operate around the same identity. This passage in Sabbath is inviting you into the same thing. You say, oh, you're, uh, you're just making this stuff up now, okay? Let me take you to another passage. This is where John's going a little later, John 17. Are you ready? Jesus is praying for me and you in this passage. I'm literally, he was literally praying for me and you because he's praying for those who would later on believe because of the testimony of those people in his day and time. This is what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be, let's participate here, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly so that the world may know that you sent me. That's purpose. And love them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in and I in do you realize that the God of the universe who lives in perfect community within himself invites you into that community? And when you come into that community, I'm going to blow your mind again. When you come into that community, you learn to be perfectly submissive to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But listen to me. They also will be submissive to you blasphemy where's the lightning bolts one other passage here's where john's going john 14 verse 12 this is jesus speaking truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will also do the what i see the father working and i work you see me working you're going to do the same and greater works than these will he do because i'm going to the father listen to this whatever you ask in my name this read it with me i will do you don't believe that that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask me anything 
in my name, read it with me, I will. But here's the thing. If you're in perfect submission with the Father and the Son, you're not going to go in prayer and ask for a Mercedes. Why? Because that's not his kingdom. That's your kingdom. That, that, that says that you're not living in this submissive relationship. You're not one. You're not centered around the same purpose and the same kingdom. So there you've gone. It's like the garden repeating itself all over again, and you're going and you're trying to create your own thing. No, Jesus wants you to understand that he's God, and he has your best interest in mind, and we need to center around the kingdom of God, the purpose of God, the identity of God, because we've been invited into that divine community. And if we perfectly come into there and we submit ourselves to the Father, Son, and Spirit, guess what? They submit themselves to us as well. Not that we become gods. It's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we are now working in the same purpose, in the same direction to build the same kingdom. Sabbath is about sitting back and recognizing God's finished work. You need to make sure you take a day a week to realize that God's finished work isn't your business. It isn't your 401k. It isn't your success as an athlete or an academician. Your worth comes from the fact that God loves you. And he invites you into a relationship with him. And that should be the goal and focus of your whole destiny. And if you do that, you're working in submission to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And Jesus will show you what he's doing and you will gladly join in on it. And when you're working and you're in tune with the Spirit, you'll say, Jesus, I need this. And Jesus will say, here it is. We're working on the same. In my name, in my name. Don't miss the beauty and the depth of the theology that's presented to us in this little passage right here. Again, we scratched the surface. I hope that today you will go deeper and reflect on the truths that impact you and the way you live your life from this day forward. What about your submission in your relationships? What about your submission in your parenting? What about your submission at work? You know, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians, and he says, we should be submissive one to another, Ephesians 5.21. And then he gives an illustration of a husband and a wife, a father and his children, and a slave and a master. And each one of them, he shows what mutual submissiveness looks like. So it goes from who God is to who we should be and how we work together. What a beautiful picture of what life can be if we understand the gospel for what it is. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your great love for us, Lord, displayed in the fact that you came into the darkness as the light to expose the darkness for what it is, but also to show us the light, to show us our great need for you, how we have literally just been playing in the mud thinking that we were on a beach and you invite us into the most beautiful holiday of knowing who you are and living and basking in your presence. Lord, help us to lay down the mud pies of this world that we've so long tried to find our value and our identity and our purpose in. And Lord, help us to embrace the divine purpose that you give to each one of us. Lord, may we be able to repeat the very same things you said in this verse that we look to you, just as you look to the Father, that we do what we see you doing, that you become the model for how we live and interact and how we value things. Lord, may you receive the honor and the glory that's due to you in your recreation in us. May we sit back and stand in awe 
the finished work of Christ on the cross. But just as you continue to work from that day forward to undo the effects of sin, may we continue to work in sequence with you to undo the effects of sin in our culture. Lord, knowing that we don't work to be forgiven of sin, we work to be rid of it. The sins have already been forgiven in you. Thank you for what a, is a huge, monumentous price that you paid for our salvation. And Lord, may we never, ever take it for granted. But may we always hold it in high esteem, the value that it should have in our life. And may it be the thing that becomes our waypoints of understanding who we are and where we are going. And we ask all of this in the powerful and sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.